Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, but reading only verses 1 to 6 and then 12 to the end. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. What is it that you could absolutely not do without? What is it if you were to experience the lack of it today, it would be, as our text says, disastrous? What is it you could not do without? We begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In the intervening verses, Moses takes a tent and pitches it outside of the camp. We pick up in verse 12 or the fourth paragraph in your bulletin. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me Know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you please open our eyes and open our hearts that we might see wonderful things from your gospel in this Old Testament text. Help us to see you. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. I was 23 years old when I was called to my first pastorate. That was enough to humble me because I didn't know anything. I didn't even know the right questions to ask. But then I had this in addition. I was by no means their first choice. I was not only their last choice, but the, one they, the only one they were left with. I literally was the only person who said yes to the invitation to that pastorate. So I needed a friend. I needed a wise person. I needed an encourager. And the the clerk of the session determined he would be that person. Jack was his name. And he attached himself to me as a faithful friend. I could call him in the wee hours of the morning, in the middle of the night. He always had an encouraging word. Everybody in the congregation loved him. And uh, he came by my office every day just to give me encouragement. I knew he prayed for me. I knew he, he taught me. He instructed me. He shared wisdom with me. And he mopped up a lot of my messes. He never said a cross word to me except one time. We were in a public meeting and he said something cynical and something hurtful. And I responded with something disrespectful. And everybody Everybody laughed because they thought they knew we were good friends and he thought it was just part of our repartee. And, but I hurt his feelings. I cut him to the heart. So he came by my office the next day. He had a big stack of papers, a big set of notebooks. And he said, you'll, you'll need these because you obviously don't need me anymore. Oh. I felt horrible. I knew I'd done the wrong thing. I begged him for forgiveness. I practically fell on my knees to beg his forgiveness and to beg him not to leave me. In fact, I didn't know how I was going to live without him. Every every fall, he battled cancer. He battled cancer the whole time I knew him. And every fall, he would have a near-death experience. He'd take him into the hospital. The doctor would say he's not going to live very long. I'd go into my prayer closet, and I would say, you can't have him, Lord. He's got to stay here with me. And the Lord would give him back in the spring. That continued on and on. I said, you can't leave me. It'd be disastrous. He really didn't want to leave. He quickly, I didn't have to beg him too much. He stayed. He just wanted the relationship restored. But eventually he did leave. The Lord did take him home. And I was left with the Lord. 
Now, what is it that you answered when I asked you that question? What is it that you could not do without? For how many of us was, was it the presence of the Lord, even the felt presence of the Lord? That's the only thing you cannot truly do without. And yet, many of us, your pastor included, we're too prone to answer with everything else. Well, it could, I could not do without that person. I could not do without that child. I could not do without that spouse, that friend. I could not do without that practice. I could not do without that, that uh, habit. I could not do without that job. I could not do without my money, whatever it is. It is totally inadequate and could be a, an idol. The only thing that you and I cannot truly do without, the only thing that would truly be disastrous if we did not have it was, is the Lord's presence. Sometimes the Lord hides His face, hides His presence from us, not because if you're, if you're united to Christ, he, he will never leave you or forsake you. He will, never, he will never depart from you. But sometimes He will hide His face to test that reliance in you. If you've never had that experience of the Lord hiding in His face, maybe it's because you've never been connected to Him. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. You must fall on your knees and beg Christ to be your Savior. Others of you have grown used to not having Him near, and this is the day when you say, please, Lord, restore that desperation for Your, for your presence. What do you do to stay near the felt presence of the Lord. Our text teaches us. It teaches us, for one, that we need repentance. Always, we always need repentance. It is always right for us to say, I am a sinner. It is always appropriate for us to say, I am sorry. Even if you're not guilty of the particular thing you're being accused of, it is always appropriate to say, I am sorry for my contribution to the brokenness of this world. Repentance is what led the way in this text. You notice it in verses 1 through 6. They are still repenting of their idolatry. Remember, chapter 32 is where we studied their idolatry. Moses had gone away, and they determined they wanted another God. They wanted one who was more accessible, one who was one who was more, more, would hearken more quickly to their demands. And so they built a calf, a pathetic, inadequate representative. That's nothing new for them. We learned already as they came out of Egypt, we learned that, uh, that they, they clung to their idols even while they were in Egypt. Just because they were enslaved, just because they were oppressed, doesn't mean that they were any less sinners or rebels against God. They're not, they're not guilty of the oppression, but they were guilty of sinful, idolatrous hearts. They, they carried those idols out of Egypt with them. They carried them into the desert. Their hearts were prone to idolatry, and we saw it in the creation of the golden calf. What is idolatry? But every sin that we commit, a disappointment with God, a disappointment that He's not doing what we tell Him to do, that He's not answering the way we want. There, there, there's something else out there that is more important to us than God. And, and what we must understand is what sin, what idolatry does to God 
Yes, it offends his, his justice, and he responds as he did in, the, in chapter 32. He held them accountable. He killed 3,000. He spared thousands and thousands, but he did bring judgment on the ringleaders. It's more than that. Our disappointment with God, our impatience with God, our choosing other things to, to add to what he said is sufficient wounds him, hurts his feelings. He's a person. His, his, his feelings don't govern him. They're not capricious and unpredictable, but he is a person. And when we, when we sin against him in any way, it wounds him and hinders the intimacy of our relationship. You hear it in this text when, when he, says, he says to Moses, he doesn't call them my people. He says the people. They're your people. He distances himself further when he says, I'm going to send an angel, not the angel of the Lord. I'm going to appoint Joshua, a non-ordained clerk, to sit outside the tent that will be outside of the camp, and you can put in your request with him. He's not totally abandoning them, but he's removing the nearness of his presence. Earlier he said, you live in tents, I'm going to pitch a tent right in the middle of your neighborhood. But now he says, I'm moving out of your neighborhood, you're going to have to go outside the camp to get me. You can appeal through a clerk and a low-ranking angel, and I'll eventually get back to you. traumatizes the people of God. It, it's a revelation that there is still genuine faith among those who, are, who view it as disastrous. The same is true for you. If you don't feel the nearness of His presence and it is a, a disastrous thing to you, you can at least know that there's, that there's true faith in you. Like the psalmist in Psalm 88, even though, even though that's a really low psalm, that's the lowest point in the psalms. When he says, the darkness is my closest friend because you've hidden your face from me. At least he's still talking to the Lord. The Lord hides his face from us sometimes to expose that we have grown, we've begun to presume on him. Chrysostom, though, church father said to be, to experience separation from God is worse than a thousand hells. So what did they do? They repented. Repentance is to turn around from where you were and turn back to the Lord. It is to say, I am sorry. I have, even though I'm not directly responsible for this particular event, I am, I am a sinner before you. My heart, like Peggy said in the children's message, my heart is exposed to you. You know that I am never clean before you. You know that my motives are always mixed. I can never justify myself totally. That is the first step, by the way, to real unity. It is to begin with not, not to begin with, oh, you can't accuse me of that. I'm not guilty of that. This is what I've… It's not to begin that way. It's always to begin by looking up and imagining with a sanctified imagination God looking at your heart and saying before God, I'm sorry. Repentance is the first step in 
in reconciling any relationship, even if you're not the one who broke it. This is what they did. They stripped off their ornaments. This is what the old preachers used to call furious repentance. This is changing habits. This is doing things on the outside that people can, can hear and, and see sometimes, that you are serious about repenting. And it is perpetual. You see at the end of verse 6, they did it from Mount Horeb onward. They never put back on that jewelry that they carried out of Egypt. They constantly were reminded that before the Lord I am condemned, I almost drove him away. The first step to knowing the, the felt presence of the Lord is to, is to repent, is to turn back to him and let him examine your heart. The second the second key is in verses 7 to 13, it is prayer. Now, you may say, I knew you were going to get to this. Preachers always tell us we need to pray more. And that's always right because we always do need to pray more. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, that it is that, that we have been far too addicted to activism. And, and we can even find our the pastor can find his worth in this activism. And, and when we can't do anything... Well, what we can do, all we can do is what is most essential to the forward movement of God's kingdom, and it is prayer. Your kingdom come. So it is appropriate for us to pray. It's a, it, is, it is appropriate um, application all the time, but that's not what I mean by this point. What I mean by this point is we need somebody to pray for us. In Hebrew, sometimes a change of direction, a change of course, an antithesis is sometimes conveyed by the switching of the order of subject and verb. Instead of the verbs beginning the sentence or the section, the subject begins. And it just is an artistic way of saying something different is going to happen. So what was it? In verses 1 to 6, what happened? God said, I'm not going to go with you. In verses 7 to 13, what happens? Moses chases God. God says, I'm not going with you. I'm moving outside the camp. What does Moses do? He runs and pitches a tent on God's doorstep. And the language tells us he had to do that a lot. Moses chases God, and he implores God not to leave his people. One ancient Near Eastern scholar tells us this is a unique prayer, that there's no record in ancient Near Eastern religious uh, documents of someone interceding for a whole group of people, much less asking for mercy. Moses begs the Lord for mercy. You and I need somebody to pray for us. We need to be in a church where shepherds, elders, staff people, pastors pray for us. Even when we're not praying for ourselves. We need to be in a church where people take sh seriously shepherding individual souls. We don't do the best of it. A lot of people here, but we sure try. And one of my, and, uh, one of my favorite complaints is when someone says, 
Every time I turn around, that pastor, that elder, they're trying to get a hold of me. They're just bugging me to death. I love it. I hope I get more of those complaints. They won't leave me alone. You're right. We're nosy shepherds. We want to nose our way into your business, not to condemn you. But in imitation of Jesus, who pursues us in order to carry our our burdens, there are places you can go, there are other churches you can go, you can be anonymous. If you've got it all together and your life is fine, you don't have any needs, that's a place to go. You need to be in a place, you need to be in a in a church where shepherds are willing to be abused by the sheep while caring for the people of God. That's what Moses did. These people weren't lovable. They threw rocks at Moses. They told him, we want to go back to Egypt. Moses loved them. But human shepherds are going to fail you, just like the human shepherds of this church fail you. They're not always there when you need them. You need someone else to pray for you, someone in addition, and that's Christ. See, God designed this whole event, this whole dialogue in order to provoke Moses to become the mediator that that would foreshadow, would anticipate Christ. He wasn't a perfect representative. It was clear by the end of his life that he wasn't Christ. But he is anticipation of that Christ. And God is provoking him to it. So God says in the dialogue, Moses said, uh, you you need to show me who's going to go with me. And uh, God responds and he says, I'll go with you and I'll be with you. I know your name, and I will show favor to you. Now, Moses and Abraham, and Moses and God knew their Hebrew very well. They knew how to pick the right pronoun in the right place. Now, it's not always clear in English uh, that whether it's a, it's a second person plural or whether it's, a, whether it's a second person singular, as in you, is it you or is it y'all? God says, Moses, I will go with you, you alone. You alone have found favor in my sight. That is intended to provoke Moses to rise to the mediator he is supposed to be. And what does, what does Moses do? Moses sides with the people. And he says... If you don't go with us, I'm not going. Now, God had made Moses a pretty good deal. He said, uh, Moses, just step out of the way. I'll kill all these people. I'll start over with you. I'll fulfill the the mandate, the, the promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can do it through you. How hard is that? And effectively, he's saying the same thing here. I'm just going to lead you, Moses. I'll take you over there to the promised land. We'll leave these to fend for themselves. They'll eventually die out, and I won't have to bother with them anymore. You can start over altogether. And Moses says, no, I'll die here with them before I set another foot forward. He goes on and pushes God, and he says, 
I want you to show me your ways. Effectively, he's saying, I want you to I want you to submit your resume. You know, I'm not so sure I can trust you. You, you seem to have a, a short fuse. If I'm, I'm not going to get these people out of the middle of the desert and you kill them all, I'm going to be by myself. I don't want that. I got too close to that before. So I want you to submit your resume so I can know whether or not you're the kind of God who can go with this stiff-necked people because I know for sure they're not going to get over their stiff-neckedness. They're going to stay stiff Necked until we get to the promised land and then beyond. So I want to know if you're going to be able to tolerate that and lead them despite it. You hear what Moses is saying? Moses is, is anticipating Christ who became like his brothers, who shared flesh and blood. It was essential that he do so, that he suffer in our place, that he be disciplined like a son. He sided with us and has never quit. And then it's revealed that Moses is actually siding with God. He pushes God even farther. I don't need you just to show me your ways. I want you to show me your heart. I want you to reveal to me what makes you tick. What is it, what, what is it that out of, out of your heart that, that inspires everything that you choose to do? And God says, God gives him a, a preview. It gives him a precy of what is going to come in, in chapter 34. He says, here's who I am. I'm going to cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. You've passed the test that I've put you through. I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And here it is in short form. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and show compassion, mother-like love to those whom I will have, upon whom I will have compassion. I am mercy. That is who I am in my heart. Everything I do, the choosing of this people, the creation of this world, the intention of sending you to be their mediator, the fulfillment of, my, of, of sending Christ, that is all that all came out of my heart of mercy. That's who I am. I am mercy. It's not until you know that God is in His essence mercy that you know Him to be near in the Savior Jesus Christ. You can't know His mercy until He has broken you to the point that you know that you are as desperate desperately in need of salvation and mercy as every other person who annoys you. It's not until you know that Jesus Christ holds up five bleeding wounds constantly and for that reason alone, that is the only reason you and I are not consumed. It is not until you know those things that you will know the nearness of His presence. One of my heroes is a man from the early 1900s named uh, John G. Payton, late 1800s, early 1900s. John G. Payton, he was from Scotland, became one of those 
those uh, incredible missionaries in the 19th century to the New Hebrides, which at the time was thought to be a headhunting, full of headhunting tribes. It was the most dangerous place imagined on the planet. It's, it's, um, it's the modern Vanuatu. And here, Peyton decided to go with the gospel of Christ, but, and uh, he, is a, he is a man of great inspiration to me. But there is, there is a, a section in his autobiography, which is a classic in Christian literature, John G. Peyton's autobiography. There is, a, there is a section there that is so precious to me. I've written it by hand into my Bible so I can have it with me all the time. It's the scene he paints of parting from his father on his way when he had to walk the road to Glasgow to go to college. And his father accompanied him for six miles and then parted with him. I want you to listen carefully as I, as I read it. And the reason I'm reading it should be entirely obvious. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain." We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him standing there with his head still uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight of him in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road, and I wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He didn't see me. After he'd gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he'd given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it and then walking away, head uncovered, have often, often through all my life risen vividly before my mind and do so now as if they had happened but an hour ago. 
In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. It's the picture of God through Jesus Christ who not only will never leave you or forsake you, but pursues you. And when you realize that He not only pursues you because you must be His, but that He pursues you because He wants you to be His, it is that love and mercy which will keep you near and which will and should keep you merciful to others. Let's be that people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Convert those who have not yet bowed the knee. Encourage those who have lost sight of you. Draw back those prodigals in the far country and encourage all of us. Overwhelm us with your mercy in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.